title of the message this morning is The Gospel Goes Public. The Gospel Goes Public, and we have a long and exciting passage to read. So let me jump in beginning at verse 14, and I'm going to go through verse 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all, all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that You would help us to understand Your meaning through this narrative, through this record, And we pray that You would help us to apply it within our lives. That we might bring You great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The name Clinton Losey probably means nothing to you, and I understand that. But according to Time magazine, he holds the world record for the, quote, longest sermon ever preached. In February of 1955, for reasons that are still inexplicable, Pastor Losey preached one single message on every single book of the Bible, and that one message lasted, now wait for it, 48 hours and 18 minutes. And I love the fact that there's 18 minutes that are part of that story. I mean, I just have this picture in my mind of, of him hitting like the two-day mark and somebody saying, do you want to stop now? And him saying, no, I want to go on for another 18 minutes. You know, it's those kind of absurdities that kind of tickle some small portion of my brain at times. Now, lest you're now concerned that I'm telling the story to appeal for equal time this morning, that's not my intention whatsoever. The, the purpose of that story is to return us to Acts chapter 2 where another record a far more historic record than simply the longest sermon is being detailed. Because in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, the first ever Christian sermon is recorded. And astoundingly, the preacher of that message is none other than Peter, the disciple who denied the Lord three times only eight weeks earlier, Peter, the one who fled to save his, his skin, Peter is now stepping up because there's this tempest that has taken place where the wind has shaken the house, the, the fire has fallen upon the disciples, tongues have broken out, charges of drunkenness have been leveled at them. But now look who steps boldly forward to deliver this historic message, to deliver this defense of what God is doing, to see 3,000 people saved in one day. Now, now we we, we got to pick apart the obvious question that's being pushed forward here, and that is, what happened to Peter? How does this denier become this daring disciple? How does this coward become this courageous communicator? And what's happening as the book of Acts unfolds is that 
it, it's nothing less than the fulfillment of the promise that has already come in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember the two-part promises that Jesus left with them? He said, wait in Jerusalem, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So the first part of that promise was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which is what we looked at last week, how the disciples received the Holy Spirit. And by the way, last week we explored what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if you're interested in thinking about that more and you weren't there, you can listen to that message. You can also go online to forexchurch.com backslash resources, and there's a paper that we posted there as well. This section, though, begins the fulfillment, begins the fulfillment in New Testament history of the second part of what was prophesied in Acts chapter 1. They've received the Spirit, and now the witnessing begins. So what I want to do this morning is look together at what specific actions Peter took in Acts chapter 2 to begin fulfilling what was prophesied in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, there's probably a couple ways to look at this passage, and one of the ways to look at it is through the preaching that takes place, since really the first event in church history is the preaching of God's Word. And the book of Acts, as we continue to read it, we're going to discover is the story of the apostles preaching. preaching. And so we can't deny the importance of this theme in Acts but you know, as, as a church, I think we're pretty clear on the importance of preaching. And so today, we're not going to focus on the priority of preaching as much, but on the content of Peter and what he shares as the first witness after the Spirit of God has fallen. So for the purposes of understanding this passage, I, I want you to think of, of witness, of witnessing, of what we're called to do as a witness as a three-sided triangle. Huh, yeah, is there any other kind, Dave? Should I talk to you about a four-sided triangle? Oh, think of it as a triangle, okay? And the first part of the triangle and the most foundational side of the triangle is the Word, the Word of God. So it's going to be the Word of God, Gospel, and Call. But first, we're going to talk about the first side of the triangle as the Word of God. So back to verse 15. So, so the Spirit has fallen. There's this cry out of these people are, are drunk. And so Peter stands with the eleven, and he says, Give ear to my words. That's how he begins. These men are not drunk as you suppose. So some of the, some of the, the spectators of the Spirit-baptized believers came to the conclusion, it, all the way back in verse 13, that they were... They were drunk, they were looped, they were plastered, and that's really what they were observing. Now what I want you to look at, though, is what's so interesting about this passage is that rather than be, being offended that such a profane act, drunkenness, could be ascribed to such a holy moment, the Spirit of God being poured out, Peter uses their conclusion as the jumping-off point for his message. And in fact, he starts by addressing their statement regarding the drunkenness of the disciples. And in fact, he raises the ante by, by virtually saying, you know, they are drunk, but they're not drunk as you suppose. 
They're not drunk on wine, and the implication there is they are drunk on the Spirit of God. But listen, here's the point I want to make, and this is what I want to get you thinking about. For Peter, being a Spirit-led witness was not about defending the Holy Spirit's credibility. It was not about defending the Holy Spirit's holiness. He's not, he's, not, he's not feeling affronted by the mocking of those who don't understand the Spirit of God, can't perceive the work of the Spirit of God, don't rightly know how to interpret what's going on with the Spirit of God. Always keep in mind as we move out into the world that the world is a fallen place. And that a fallen place spawns foolish thoughts. I mean, do you remember some of the strange strange things you believed before you were a Christian? Do you remember some of those things? I remember I went through a phase before I was converted where I believed that smoking weed brought me closer to God. God created nature. Marijuana was a plant. Therefore, I was glorifying God by smoking weed. And really, smoking weed was just another way for me to escape reality because I was into escaping reality. Smoking weed was another way for me to indulge myself because I was doing nothing more than indulging myself. And it was just, it just seemed spiritual, and it seemed spiritual to ascribe it to God. And that was the way my conscience was working, or I should say, was not working back then. Here's my point Peter was not shocked or appalled by the unbeliever's response to spiritual things. In fact, their response became his doorway for witnessing. And I want you to think about that as you're, as you're beginning to reach out to your one life. I want you to think about that, to, not to be put off by strange ideas about what is, what is thought about God or the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the, in Acts chapter 2, it shows us, if anything, even people mocking the Spirit can meet the Spirit and be miraculously converted by the Spirit. So Peter starts with their declaration. He starts right where they are. He doesn't expect them to come somewhere else. He starts right with where they are, in this strange idea that what they're seeing is actually drunkenness. And Peter moves from drunken disciples to the Word of God. Because remember, by going back to Joel, there was only the Old Testament back then. So he's going back to the Bible that they had. And he's going back specifically to Joel. And he declares that what they see as mayhem is really the fulfillment of what one of the prophets had foretold. So once again, just like in, in, in chapter 1, remember how we looked at chapter 1? We saw how the disciples went from the occasion to the Word. Judas was gone, and so they realized the Word of God applied in this way. They went from the occasion to the Word. Here... They're doing that again. They're going from the occasion to the Word, but they're also going from the Word to witness. And what I want to do together is to consider the actual words that Peter references because there's two main things that Peter references from Joel chapter 2. The first is that this is the last days. The last days have now officially begun And that's where he starts in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, he says. And secondly, the Spirit of God has come. The Spirit of God has been poured out. And because the Spirit of God has been poured out, the Spirit empowers, empowers with gifts like prophecy, visions, dreams, things like that. And the Spirit enables, 
Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, verse 21. So the Spirit empowers and enables. So just let's just look at, at this passage from Joel that Peter's talking about and think a little bit about why Peter goes to Joel. So he first says, in the last days. And we really can't move any further than that because we really have to understand what's, what's being meant there because in the Jewish mind, oh man, did that, did that explode with significance. In the Jewish mind, the last days was when God would establish his rule on earth. It was when all nations would come together and worship Jehovah and peace would ultimately prevail for Israel after the Messiah had come. And in fact, the last days was why the Messiah would come. So what Peter's doing here is Peter is, is, is blowing their gaskets by announcing that the last days have arrived. And what Peter does is he reinterprets Joel to say that the last days was not what you believed. It was not how you perceived they were going to take place. In fact, the last day's clock has just started. Boom! The Spirit's poured out. It starts the clock on the last day. So Peter's informing them that, that their Old Testament vision of this really bad spell where the Messiah would then come and set up this earthly paradise, that Old Testament vision is not right. He informs us, in a sense, that, it, that the last days would not be some kind of movie where Nicolas Cage would finally find the role that's fits him and suited for him perfectly. That the last days is now revealed to be the period between the two comings of Jesus Christ. The first coming and the second coming. It is the age between the inauguration of the kingdom through Christ's coming, his death, and his resurrection and the consummation of the kingdom in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that between period, we live in this, this age where the, the future overlaps with the present. The kingdom is here, but has not yet come completely. Where, we, where Jesus says, if I cast out demons, the kingdom is among you, but he still instructs us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because he was establishing first a kingdom in the heart. The theologians call this the already but not yet. It's, it's the last days. It's the time between the two appearings. The time between the two comings of Jesus Christ. So Peter's announcing to them right out of the gate that the last days have begun. The ribbon has been cut. The last days have been launched. Now, I know for, for those of us that might be hearing this or understanding this for the first time, we might be tempted to think, look, the, the kingdom is here now? Well, well, how is that supposed to help me? I mean, how is that supposed to make any difference? What's the point of all that? We don't see it. Nobody, we know, no one's here to follow. Nobody's here in physical form. The enemy still remains every year. What's the point of all that? And I think that's a good question. But let, let's not miss the context in which this is being announced. The Spirit of God has just been poured out. So God is answering that by saying, in the last days, I give my Spirit. 
My Spirit empowers you with gifts. See verses 17 and 18. My gifts enables you to move towards salvation. See verse 21. My Spirit will be your guide. So the take-home point here is that to be a witness is to witness to the truth. What Peter does is he goes to the truth. He goes to the truth of God's Word, and he stands as a witness to the truth. And as we go forward as witnesses, we too are called to carry the Word of God, to carry the truth. As you engage your one life, let the Bible go with you. Let the Bible speak for you. Put the Word of God into play just as Peter did. So the first one is the Bible. That's the first side of the triangle, and that's the bottom side because that's the foundational side. Secondly is the gospel. The gospel. See, witnessing is not just telling someone about various biblical truths. Witnessing is about delivering them to the center of Scripture, meaning Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the center of Scripture. Which is why Peter, in his first sermon, is not just pulling passages and randomly connecting them to people's lives. This is not just a sermon about the last days or or unpacking what the gift of tongues are really all about. It can be tempting at times to see Scripture as these disconnected pearls of wisdom that God has just dropped in that we're supposed to pull out and apply to our lives. Or, Or just random principles that exist that are supposed to inform us how we're, how we're supposed to live, that, that, that become a road or a track or a path. I, I know that because I spent my first decade in ministry doing practical, biblical preaching and teaching. You know, just taking passages and looking for how it can be practically applied, creating a bridge from the passage into the life of the person. And... I was doing that because I was insufficiently aware of something that Peter, from the very beginning, sees very clearly. And that is that every road in Scripture leads to the Gospel, through the Gospel, and from the Gospel. The Gospel being the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's the Gospel. And to be a witness includes the gospel. In other words, it's not just point one. It's not just the Bible, but it's the point of the Bible. It's delivering people to the, to the consummation of the Bible, to the main point of the Bible. Every road in Scripture leads to the gospel. And see, for Luke, this is not new information because he tells the story in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, back in Luke chapter 24, about the disciples the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there are these disciples, it's after Jesus has died, and he's been resurrected, but they're not aware he's been resurrected, and they're walking about seven miles into Emmaus, and they're talking together about these events that have taken place. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them, but he cloaks himself in some way, so that they don't know it's Jesus, and he says, what's going on? And they're saying, where have you been? Because everything, the world has been turned upside down here. And he said, well, what, what happened? So they begin to tell him 
all the events that had taken place about Jesus dying and Jesus, Jesus being promised to raise from the dead, but they didn't know that he was. And then Jesus, it says in the final verse of that section, it says Jesus, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. So in other words, you have these disciples that don't really know what it all means. And so what Jesus does is he takes the Old Testament, beginning with the Moses, beginning mo- moving through the prophets, and just takes them from one passage to another, to another, to another, to another, explaining how all of it points to Jesus. How all of it points to the Gospel. See, the Gospel is a much more than just good news that's been given to us. It's the organizing center for all theology. It is the key to interpreting the Word of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the only hope that we have for seeing any of our one lives converted at any point in the future. In fact, the reason we're having the marriage conference is not merely to learn handles for marriage and communication and romance and things like that together. It's to It's to help folks connect the challenges that we all encounter in marriage to the Gospel and to understand how the Gospel moves us through that. What does the Gospel say when I get angry? What does the Gospel say when my kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing? What does the Gospel say when we're having conflict or when I'm dealing with loss? How does the Gospel address those things? So what Peter is doing here is he's taking the outpouring of the Spirit, and he's kind of like going all Emmaus on them. You know, he's, in, he's interpreting for them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Jesus. And he begins with Joel. And so to witness to them regarding Jesus, he brings two different, well, he brings a couple of different data points. He talks about the historical events, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, And then he talks about the witnesses from the Old Testament. David, he cites David two different occasions in this this speech, in this message. And then he also talks about the apostles, what they've seen, what they've heard, what they observed. So in the historical presentation, he goes to verse 22. He talks about Jesus' life and ministry. And we're not going to drop into this just in the interest of time, but he talks about how he's a great teacher. He's a worker of miracles. He's saying, you know all this. Verse 23, he's talking about Christ's death, and he's saying, oh, by the way, you killed him too. Verses 32-33, he's talking about this Jesus whom God raised up. So it's all this historical information. But then he's also talking about the witnesses to this. The witness of the Old Testament. And that's where he goes back. And he talks about David. He cites Psalm 16. And Psalm 110, verses 25, 34. And he says, this Jesus that God raised up, he says, we, are, we were all witnesses. Now that doesn't mean that everybody present was witnesses. Most of them were not. But he's talking about the 120. We were all witnesses. So there are people there that actually witnessed these things, and he's bringing that into play as well. And part of the reason for that 
And this goes a little bit back to the first message we had in the Acts series. Part of the reason is that as witnesses, Peter wants his hearers to understand that the gospel is reliable, the gospel is credible, that the gospel is historical. See, like us, Peter is trying to reach an audience with questions. That's what you're trying to do as well. As you go out into your job, as you, as you identify your one life, as you think about how to reach your area for the gospel, you begin to encounter people that has questions. That's, that's what Peter's after as well. We're talking about people that use deduction. They, they concluded that the disciples were drunk because they saw a certain kind of behavior that in times past can only be ascribed to drunkenness. So <clears throat> Peter does not come out of the gate asking these unbelievers to embrace irrationality or something that has no evidence attached to it or something that has no basis in reality whatsoever. That's not the way he begins to relate to these unbelievers. I heard a news report on Friday about a New York artist. Anybody hear about this? A woman named Lana Newstrom, who's making millions and millions of dollars selling invisible art. I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true, right? I listened to this report, Canadian Broadcast Corporation. They actually did an interview with her where they traveled to New York, and they, they walked around her empty studio as she described for them the art pieces that she had created and, uh, and, and had sold to other people. So I, I took the liberty of placing an imaginary order with an invisible credit card to raise money for the church, related back to what I was saying earlier. And so next week in the lobby, bring your real wallet with some real money. Listen, I don't know if this story is true, but basically in, in talking about it, they're being asked by Lana to believe something there is no evidence for. That's not what Peter's doing here. Peter is saying these events are verified and were verified by credible witnesses. But even more importantly, and this goes back to an earlier point, he wants them to understand that the Spirit's coming attests to the gospel. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's talking about Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, even the, the pouring out of the Spirit relates back to the gospel. Had Jesus not ascended, the Spirit would not have been poured out. Had Jesus not been seated next to the Father, the Spirit had not been poured out. All these events that are taking place, and you'll see Paul in his travels do this again and again. He's always relating it back to the gospel. He's always taking people back to the gospel. He always wants people to understand how to interpret their experience in light of the gospel. So the gospel is the core. The gospel is primary. The gospel is at the center. The gospel is the main thing. And Peter reminds us to make sure as we seek to witness and be a witness that our witnessing includes the gospel. So you have the Bible. 
That's the bottom half of the triangle. You have the gospel. That's the left-hand side. And you have, finally, the call. And that's the last part, the call. So Peter opens the word, and he takes them to the gospel, and then in response, and a response, which is in verse 37. Let's just read that. Look at that. He says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They heard the Bible. They heard the gospel. They heard about the Holy Spirit. This is their response. They were cut to the heart. This is the only place that Greek word appears in the entire New Testament. That word that's translated as cut means to pierce, to stab. It means they were overcome by grief and remorse. Remember, the gospel, Paul said, is the power of God unto salvation. They heard it. It was declared. It's having an effect. They were cut to the heart. And this is where the call comes in. Because there's really two things that Peter does here as a result of the Spirit coming and proclaiming this message. Peter makes it real, which means makes it personal for them, and then he makes an appeal. That's part of the call. He makes it real, he makes an appeal. So making it real, like most, most people, the listeners, as they're listening, this is very important, the listeners do not see themselves as responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And that's understandable because some, perhaps many of the people assembled, were not there when Christ was crucified. Nevertheless, twice, verses 23 and 36, Peter says to them, you crucified Jesus. He made it personal. You crucified Jesus. The Christ, he made it personal. He made it personal because it was personal. Behold the offense of the cross. It's not just that we're sinners in a general, generic, arbitrary way. It's that we are actually responsible as sinners for the death of God. That's the offense of the cross. It's not that we've just committed some kind of misdemeanor and must pay our fine. It's that our sins are deserving of God's wrath. See, Peter's not the only one to ever deny Christ. The disciples were not the only ones to ever flee Christ. We're all represented in those acts, and we have all acted in a treasonous way towards God at some point in our life. And yet Jesus the sinless one, out of his love for us, the sinless one became the sin bearer and received in his body the wrath that we deserved. See, make no mistake, it's just too simple to say the Jews killed Jesus. It's just too simple to say the wicked people killed Jesus. No, what Peter's saying to them and Peter's saying to us as well is that we killed Jesus. We killed him. And that was where conviction came. That's what resulted in them being cut to the heart. It got personal. Perhaps you're familiar with the Horatius Bonar hymn that he wrote back in 1856. It's titled, "'Twas I That Did It." It begins, 
I see the crowd in Pilate's hall. Their furious cries I hear. Their shouts of crucify, appall. Their curses fill mine ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved Son. And as they, smi as they smite, I feel afresh that I and them are one. Around the cross, the throng, I see that mockers that suffers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sin. And not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. See, Horatius Bonar made it real. He made it real to himself. He makes it real to us. Peter did the same thing. See, to, to witness, we must do the same thing. And that's what's happening here. Peter's making it real. He's making then an appeal. And that's what he does in verse 38. He follows that up with this is how you should respond. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. You crucified the Savior. But it doesn't just end there. It's not like this is just bad news. You crucified the Savior. You should feel horrible. Aren't you glad that as witnesses going to our one life, we have good news, not just bad news? And the good news is that people can repent of the bad news. And repent they must. And be baptized, they must. Now, that, that's a lot of information to be dumping on somebody. I mean, I can imagine that you're thinking, you know, wait a minute, this, this is unbelievable. We've got to tell people they killed Christ, they have to repent of their sins, and their whole body needs to be dunked into water. Is that, is that the message? To which I would say, yes. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need Him. Because... From an earthly standpoint, humanly speaking, that message is never getting anywhere. That message is dead out of the starting gate. We need the Holy Spirit because we've got a crazy message. We need the Holy Spirit because we've got a crazy mission. We don't need tongues to, for people to think that we're drunk. We've got this crazy message. People think we're drunk as soon as we tell them our message. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need to make our appeal trusting in the Spirit of God, trusting in the gospel that we preach because we too are called to be witnesses in the last days. If you were in here during the prayer time, you'll remember that on the wall over there, there was the one lives that we were to be praying for. And all over the room then, there were these names of people, people that need Jesus. I mean, we're talking about atheists and agnostics and perhaps pantheists. And, and even more dangerous than that, we're talking about churchgoers who believe they are righteous simply because they're attempting to conform to the law. How are we supposed to reach them? How are we supposed to help them? Acts 2 is a timely reminder to all of us that we don't need the anointing of an apostle like Peter. 
We don't even need the size of the group that was assembled there to mobilize. We don't even need the stamina of our original record holder, Pastor Losey. What we need is the Word of God. What we need is the Gospel of God. What we need is the Holy Spirit, the one who came suddenly, the one who comes with the power of God, the one who gives us boldness to speak, the one who cuts to the heart when the Word of God is shared, the one who grants fruit and will grant fruit one life at a time. May God help us. May God give us fruit. May God give us boldness. May God pour out His Spirit upon us. Let's pray.